Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for tuning in. You're going to love the topic today as we talk about a brand new book, hot off the presses. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. And Natasha Crane is our guest. Before we get into that, let's just remind you guys, um, uh, you know, there's wars and rumors of wars as prophesied in Scripture. And we know what's happening in Russia and Ukraine is concerning to a lot of us, wondering how you know America might get involved, wondering the, the, the direction of the world, if this thing could blow up. Well, guys, this is where we come in and trust God, who is sovereign over all things, and who allows these things to happen, whatever direction this takes. So remember, we have an almighty God that is trustworthy and unshakable, even though the world might be shaking, so to speak. So we read Matthew 24 or Mark 13 and just... Uh, Refresh your memory on wars and rumors of wars, which Jesus talked about. And so I just wanted to put that out there as uh, we see some world events uh, taking place and a lot of events coming into fruition that uh, had been prophesied. So um, let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this opportunity to encourage the remnant of Bible-believing, truth-proclaiming Christians and give them a little bit more equipping and a little bit more Um, encouragement to go in that direction of being the salt and light that we are called to be by you, Jesus. And we thank you for that. Thank you that our purpose doesn't change no matter what's happening in our culture around us, whether that be cancel culture or in our world, whether that be international conflicts with nations and the nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. We know, Lord, your word is true. And we know that uh, you are the only one that knows the end from the beginning. And we just trust you for the rest and what's in between. We thank you that we are here for such a time as this. And we lift up this hour to you. And we ask that you would encourage hearts, challenge people's thinking, and inform those who need this information in Jesus' name. Amen. Natasha Crane is a national speaker, author, blogger, podcaster. And her passion is to help Christians think more clearly about holding on to a biblical worldview in the midst of an increasingly challenging secular culture. Now, we had her on. It's been maybe six months to a year or more, but um, we talked about some of her earlier books last time, Uh, three apologetics books for parents that are very helpful. I just want to mention briefly here, talking with your kids about Jesus, talking with your kids about God, and keeping your kids on God's side. But today, we are blessed. This book is, is excellent, and I highly recommend it. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. It just came out like a week and a half ago. Natasha Crane, welcome back to Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Yes, it sure is. And I know you had a little bout with COVID recently. I had mine last year, and I know you fought through and uh, did some, a lot of interviews, and that's what you do, right? When you're an author, you got this book out, and you want to tell people about it and take these opportunities and... Uh, uh, it's been challenging. So what's been going on recently in your ministry, in your home? Just share a little bit, maybe from a personal side. 
Yeah, it's been a very busy time for the reasons that you just said. You know, obviously, when you have a book come out, there's a lot that's going on. People think writing a book is just about writing a book, but it's about so much more, as you know. <laughs> you write the book, and then you spend a whole lot of time after that telling people about the book in the hope that they're going to find some value in it and, and learn about it and those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's just been, you know, busy with interviews, getting well from COVID. That was a whole thing. Mm. Uh, in the meantime, I'm homeschooling two of my three kids. I have twins who are in seventh grade, and I have a fifth grader and I homeschool the seventh graders. So it's uh, very busy between homeschooling and all things related to uh, book writing and, and promoting interviews. And then every night of the week, I am e either a soccer field or a baseball <laughs> field because my kids are actively involved in sports too. So I'm not sure where uh, where any free time comes in here, but I'm going to find it at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, we praise God that uh, your job is not done yet on this earth because you are a, a voice of truth and and reason and your writing, I believe, really impacts a lot of people. In fact, we'll get into that in a minute because that's how you kind of started off chapter one in your book. You were you were kind of uh, uh, asking people, you know, surveying in a way, and based on some of the things you had written in a blog you wrote that just went viral. But I want to mention um, what others are saying about your book. I mean, I'm looking at this list. These you had me at the endorsements. I mean, you just look at some of the people here, and we've blessed. We've been blessed to have some of them on the podcast. Alisa Childers, we've had on um, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, um, Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, Jeff Myers. So they've been on Stand Up for the Truth, and they highly endorse your book. Also, Mike Winger, Scott Klusendorf, uh, Dan Kimball, uh, Nancy Piercy, Greg Kokel. And um, I think I, I may have uh, missed one or two, but my goodness, that's like a who's who of uh, apologetics and worldview issues. And by the way, friends, the foreword is written by John Stone Street. We quote him a lot. We uh, use his blogs at times to speak about some of the things that he is addressing culturally. He's the president of the Colson Center. And of course, we uh, follow Breakpoint. So Natasha, high reviews before the book even got out to press and got out to the general public from uh, your peers. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. It's pretty impressive to me looking at this list of uh, people that endorse the book. Oh, I'm really grateful for their kind words. They were very generous in reading the book. And yeah, it, it's an honor. I, I, I have so much respect for mm -hmm. all those people that you just named off. So it, it really is an honor to have them in the book. Yeah, some of them in, have been in this battle for a long time. And uh, it's a, just a blessing to have their voices. Um, so let's jump into, well, you know, part of me wants to talk about even the foreword, because I love Stone Street and some of the things he, he said, but I want to get into, right before chapter one, um, you have a page that says the new normal. Now, I have come to loathe those words, the new normal. I mean, what is normal? We've got to define all this. But I like the way you set it up and chapter one is called Welcome to Your Place in a Worldview Minority. So let's take a little bit of time. I know some people think polls and surveys are tedious. And I, I really like how you set this up as you went through some of the polls and some of the, the ways that people think about the Christian faith and our culture and the biblical worldview, which we talk about a lot here. So just set us up how you just decided to start with that in your first chapter. 
Yeah, well, I think it's really important that we do understand some of the data because it, it places everything we're talking about in context. If you don't know sort of where you are within culture, then you're not going to be able to really address what's next. And so I think it's a natural starting point from uh, for the book to start from some of that data. So what I talk about is the fact that a lot of people have heard some basic statistics about how people identify religiously in the U.S. And they think, well, this is a crazy thing. Why are you saying we're a minority? Minority. Mm. Because if you look at all of the research from an organization called the the Pew Forum, and they're really widely known for tracking religious trends in America, do they do huge surveys? Uh, the Religious Landscape Survey is is what it's known as. When you look at this, they say that sixty five percent of Americans call themselves Christians. Yeah. And when you hear that, you think, <laughs> oh well, you know. <laughs> well, for a lot of us, we say it sure doesn't feel like that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like almost two thirds of people are Christians. So we have to understand that when we see that kind of data, that is based on how people self-identify. So that is, if the researchers call you up and they give you a list of things, how do you identify? You know, atheist, agnostic, or Jewish, Mormon, Christian. That sixty-five percent of people will pick off the list. I'm a Christian. But of course, that doesn't tell you anything about what they actually believe. For some people, it could just be that, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Mom and dad would want me to say I'm a Christian, so uh, I'll, I'll pick Christian, uh, but have no active faith in Jesus, for example. Or other people might just think that they are a so-called follower of Jesus because they generally think he was a good moral teacher, mm. but not have any inclination to believe that he was actually God himself. So there are all kinds of things people could mean by that. What's important? then for us to understand about what we see in culture is to know what do people actually believe and how do they live their lives accordingly. Mm -hmm. So for that research, we can look to the Cultural Research Center from Arizona Christian University led by Dr. George Barna. And what they have done is use dozens of questions, a whole battery of questions to figure out well, what do actually people believe and how are they living their lives? And when you see this and when you look at that data and you dig more deeply into it, what they have found is that 6% of Americans would have what we would consider to be a functioning biblical worldview. In other words, adhering to the basic truths as taught in the Bible and then seeking to live their lives accordingly. Hmm. That says so much, right? Yes, you know, yes. 6% biblical worldview versus a 65% claim of the label vastly different. And a couple other quick statistics just to throw in there. Sure. Uh, for 18 to 29-year-olds, that number with a biblical worldview is 2%. And not only are we clearly a minority within the church, but we are, I, I'm sorry, a minority within culture, but we are a minority within the church yes. as well. The yes. data shows that about 21% of evangelical Protestant churchgoers are people who have a biblical worldview. So all of these these statistics really should grab us. And first of all, it makes sense of what we're feeling. And I've had a lot of people who have been reading the book tell me that they felt the, the results of this data, but they mm -hmm. didn't know how to put their finger on it. So I think when we, we see the data, we understand what it means, everything starts to make a little more sense. And then we can say, what now? What now? How then should we live? I think of Francis Schaeffer, who you quote in the book. And also there's a quote by John Stott, who said, we should not ask, you know, what has happened to this world? We should ask, what has happened to the salt and light? And so what you're pointing out is it comes back to the church. And I, um, I know how hard it is to be a pastor and a church leader, a ministry leader. And, but we do have to 
place a lot of this responsibility on the pulpits for the lack of equipping of the saints. But it's been shocking, Natasha. I mean, when I wrote my first book at that time, 78% of Americans claim to be Christian. So now you're saying 65 in recent research, and the literal biblical worldview of Americans is 6%. So we have to understand, and we've talked about this a lot, the fact that there are professing Christians or so-called Christians. But let's run down on, on page 26. You just list one, two, three, four, five, six things that really indicate that a person does have a biblical worldview, and that is absolute moral truth exists— the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Satan is a real being or force, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or by doing good works. Jesus lived a sinless life on earth, and God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. It's not surprising, Natasha, that you write about—in fact, we'll talk about this a little later— you call secularism the inescapable worldview, and because it is a worldview. So, you know what, why don't we just start with that um, now, since we talked about it. Why is the secular worldview so compelling to people, including many Christians? Well, let's start with a definition, because like you've mentioned, there's so many words that float around today. We're all talking about different things, including the word Christian, right? Mm -hmm. But let's let's go with secular. So I think the, the most common definition, when people are thinking of secular, they're thinking of the political structure of a country, for example. So when we talk about the United States being secular in that way, we're saying that as a country, we don't defer to the authority of a particular religion or God in our public life. So we have freedom of religion. And we can also use that definition when we're talking about individuals. So a person who would be secular in their worldview would be someone who doesn't defer to the authority of a particular religion or God in their own life. And so secularism is the worldview that comes along with that. But here's what's so important for people to understand. If you take away the authority of a given religion or God from someone's life, they're not left with no authority at all. They are left with the authority of the self. Mm. And so this is really the tie that functionally binds the worldviews of millions of people. It's the authority of the self rather than the authority of God, as it would be for a Christian, for example. And we, we might think, well, you know, lots of people having the authority of the self would mean we see all kinds of different things going on and all kinds of different belief systems out there. And that's true. Secular people can have all kinds of different beliefs about the nature of reality. But when you have this commonality of seeing the authority for truth and what's right and wrong, that, that it's yourself, there are going to be a lot of things in common. And so that's a, that's a lot of what I talk about in the book, and we can get into that later. But sure. to come back to why it's compelling, so now we've defined it that secularism is a worldview based on the authority of the self. Why is that so compelling? Well, the Bible tells us why. And, and this is so important to understand. The Bible itself answers that question about today's culture because the Bible itself tells us that every single one of us, by our very human nature, wants to go our own way. Mm. We all want to run away from God. That is the pulling of the flesh. And even for Christians, we can struggle with this. Mm -hmm. Even 
as Christians, we oftentimes want to go our own way. And so secularism is a worldview that surrounds us. That's the dominant worldview in culture. And it also happens to be a worldview that appeals to our very human nature. Mm. So we have to understand it to be able to resist it because it is by our nature so appealing. Yes, it is. And in fact, you had some of the responses that you got from people when you put out these questions on social media. I remember the one that said they get more excited during uh, a sports event or a football game than they do at worship at church on Sunday morning. And so there's a very interesting, I know I just ruffled some feathers right there, because I always tell people, man, if you can shout and say, yeah, when someone scores a touchdown and put pump your fist in the air, but you're in church and, and you don't want to stand up and raise a hand or express your your love of our God and Savior during a worship song, there's a problem. Would you like to just take talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that we we oftentimes we're looking to culture for our cues of what's acceptable, hmm. right? We yep. look around and we have to remember that what's acceptable by a secular culture is going to be very different than what is good and what is beautiful according to God. So I, I do think that you know, for some people they might hear that and and say, well, you know, a sports game that's different. And yes, it, it, it's a different kind of environment for sure. But it, it does. I, I liked that person's comment mm -hmm. that that you read because I think it does force us to look at ourselves and think about where are we getting our cues mm. for who we are and who God is and what that relationship looks like. And so much of the time when we look around and we see that the rest of the culture is so far removed from any kind of relationship with God, or at least the kind of relationship that the Bible would call us to, we see that and then we import those beliefs like so many of the other beliefs that I talk about in the book. We get swept into some very secular ways of thinking. We do. We sure do. And I just want to quote that same page in your book. I believe, I believe we're still in chapter one. It says, when you're talking about these people that you surveyed, they had noticed the effects of secular influence in um, in widely scattered examples over time, but they hadn't necessarily seen how those effects were produced by the same deeper trend. And this is what you say, the bleeding of secularism into the worldview of Christians everywhere. Natasha, we've got two and a half minutes left in this segment. I believe that is a very profound statement because we're talking about influence now. Uh, you, you might say infestation, the bleeding of of secularism, not only into the worldview of Christians, but into churches. Your thoughts? So this, this is really the heart of the book, is seeing that people get swept into these ways of thinking because they're not clear on their own biblical worldview. Mm. They're not clear on the nature of secularism, the worldview that surrounds us. So if you're not clear on where you are and you're not clear on what surrounds you, of course these worldviews are going to merge together. You're going to see this bleeding into how you should believe, think, and live. Mm. And I, I find that distinction so helpful. I laid the book out in that way. There are three different sections there faithfully different believing, faithfully different thinking, and faithfully different living. And all of those pieces are connected, and we can see secularism bleeding in to all three of those areas of Christian lives today. And so I, th I think that's what we have to really consider is that are we living as an extension of the secular world? Are we as Christians just extensions of all of this, or are we going to be a distinct light to it? And although we—I just want to go back, and although we mentioned that we are— we. Bible-believing Christians that have that biblical worldview and all the essentials and how we, we practice our faith and, and, and how we are salt and light, uh, we are the minority for sure, 
But God can do so much with just a little bit of light. So I just want to encourage people. You feel like you're surrounded by unbelievers. Yes, we're in, a, we're in this society. We're in this world. We're not of this world. We're in it. But I just wanted to emphasize that. So we're going to take a break. But when we come back, a lot of things we want to ask you. A little bit more about what, why you call it the inescapable worldview. Also, we're going to talk about progressive Christianity, which is this pressure coming from within the church also when it comes to that. And also the difference between secular social justice and biblical justice. Oh my goodness, that's a huge one. The book is called Faithfully Different. Our guest is Natasha Crane. More in just a minute on Stand Up For The Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Natasha Crane, and she's an author, apologist, homeschool mom, we love that, and a blogger. Um, she has a podcast. If you want to listen to it, we have the link to it. It's, of course, at natashacrane.com slash podcast. But the book is just excellent. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. And we've been kind of walking through this, explaining the biblical worldview, our influence, our purpose, why we are sometimes so influenced by things outside of the church or Christianity. And so I'll just set that up right there, Natasha. I'll let you answer the question. Um, it's in bold letters in your book. In, in, uh, before you start explaining a little bit more of it and elaborating, it says, secular, Secularism, the inescapable worldview. Um, to some people, that's uh, a little disappointing or dis- discerning. I mean, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's discouraging to hear that, but that's this world that we're living in, and we have to understand how we are supposed to still live in these times, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that I want to do when I when I set out to write this book is to be very honest about the situation, but also to be encouraging. Because mm-hmm. as you're saying, you know, this we are called to be salt and light. We are the ones who are out here preserving what's true. And so we should be encouraged knowing that we have the truth and it shouldn't be discouraging at all. Even though we can feel discouraged by what's going on, we shouldn't feel discouraged that somehow God is not going to win in the end, because of course we know that He will. But secularism is somewhat inescapable, not that it has to impact us. Ultimately, this book is hopefully going to show Christians how to not let it influence you. But it's inescapable, meaning it's everywhere we turn in the culture. And so we have to understand that and be prepared for it so we can recognize it. But it is everywhere that we go. And I talk about the fact that my background professionally is in marketing. I used to be a marketing executive before I ever got into ministry. And I talk about how marketers ultimately are people who understand what it means to influence. They're experts in influencing people. So how do you get a given message to a given audience is the question. And really what it comes down to, there are two factors that make something influential. And this is what makes secularism so inescapable. Number one, is the felt relevance of a message. So how relevant is a given message to you when you hear it? How much does it affect you personally? And we already talked about that. We already Mm -hmm. saw that from a biblical perspective that the felt relevance of the secular message, that you're the authority, it's all up to you, you don't need anything or anyone outside of you, that that feels very relevant to us by our very human nature. So check one box for the influence 
of secularism. But the second really important factor in this from a marketing perspective, from an influence perspective, is prominence. So how much do you hear a given message. And we've all been the recipients of marketing messages in our lives. And we know the more that you hear something, the more you start thinking, hey, maybe I need that product. Maybe <laughs> I need that phone or or mattress or whatever it is. But with secularism, it's prominent because it's embedded everywhere around us. It's in academia. It's in the media. It's in the entertainment we see. It's an inescapable worldview because all of these institutions of culture are helping to push this message forward. It's the default message that we hear. So we have to be really strong in our faith, really convicted in our faith to recognize it as the default, to know exactly how it's extremely different from a biblical worldview, mm. and then be able to resist and respond in a godly way. So yes, it's inescapable, meaning culture is reinforcing these ideas at every turn, but that doesn't mean that we have to give in to it. Amen. Amen. And I, when you said that, I thought of compromise. And I want to jump to chapter five in your book called Reestablishing What We Should Actually Believe. And one of the principles you talk about, number five, is the, uh, the cure for cultural disagreement will never be to compromise biblical beliefs. And oh my goodness, it's so disappointing to see believers who know the truth and have the truth back down and or compromise in some areas where they feel pressure or they feel they're being called hateful or intolerant. So I just want to go to page 100 in your book, and it's called the, the, this, this section, The Push and Pull of Unbiblical Ideas, a couple principles, and I just want to start with this one, Natasha, because it's phenomenal. The nicest-sounding beliefs are not necessarily the right beliefs. My goodness, are we driven by feeling and emotion and what sounds good because as you, we talked about a little bit earlier, they're redefining certain words now, and it seems like they might come against the truth or the biblical worldview. Could you please elaborate on these principles about the push and pull of unbiblical ideas? I think this is the one that you mentioned specifically about how the nicest sounding ones are not always the right ideas. I think that this is one that trips the most Christians up today <laughs> mm -hmm. because secular culture, it, it can sound really nice. There are a lot of things that are said that are put on mugs and pillows at the store that you see these little these little phrases like follow your heart and a love is all that matters and love is love. You see these things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times if you're not familiar with the worldview behind it and you don't stop to think about it, it can be very deceptive because you start thinking, well, yeah, love love is really important. And Jesus said we should love other people. <laughs> love is all that matters, the, the great commandment, right? But that that's not what this means. And so a lot of times we try to establish whether or not we're sharing truth by how people receive it. Yes. And so we think that if they are offended or they say they're hurt or that what we've said is harmful in some way, we start thinking, well, I must have done something wrong. I must have said something wrong. I must have said it in the wrong way. And we absolutely can say things in the wrong way. So let me be clear about that. We can, we can be jerks in how we deliver truth. But a lot of times people will be offended or hurt just because they don't like the truth you share, not because of the way in which you shared it. And so we can't look to see if we've been 
nice in some way, according to the definitions of the world, to determine if we have the right beliefs. We have to get back to understanding, okay, how do I know that the Bible really is the inspired and authoritative word of God? And once I know that, everything should line up with that truth. Because if God is the God of the universe, our sovereign God, the creator of everything, well, then of course I want to go with whatever truth he shared. He's the only one who knows. And so we have to get back to being committed to what it means to hold to that objective anchor as revealed in the Bible, rather than looking only at how people respond. Amen. The message doesn't change based on people's reactions or whether they respond or receive the message. We've got examples of that all through Scripture. And just because you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That sounds very exclusive. Although in another part of Scripture, it says God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is a universal offer that he died for our sins. And if we would believe, we can be saved eternally. So anyone can, but not everyone will. I want to go over to your Facebook page, Natasha. You posted something I believe is relevant to what we're talking about. And by the way, you can follow her on Facebook, Natasha Crane, author and speaker. Her recent post from yesterday, it says, When someone claims you're being judgmental, tell them they're being judgmental of you being judgmental. And that is fine. As functioning humans, we make judgments all the time. The question isn't whether we should judge, but how to make the right judgment and on what objective basis we can do so. Natasha, people need to hear that and be reminded that they are not wrong for proclaiming the gospel uh, and the need for repentance from sin, but that's not a popular message today, and people often, that's their knee-jerk reaction. You're judging, right? Exactly. And uh, so when I break down what exactly is entailed by this authority of the self in a secular worldview, I put it into four tenets that feelings are the ultimate guide, Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. In other words, no one can have any confidence about who or what is out there, if anything. Hmm. And so the judging part of it, I think that a lot of Christians get tired of people saying, oh, you're being so judgmental, or they start to embrace that idea that it's bad to be judgmental. But they're not realizing how well-rooted that idea of judgment being bad is in a secular worldview perspective. Once you understand why it belongs right there and not with biblical Christianity, then it becomes something that you see very differently. So if you think about this, if secularism is all about the authority of the self, then you're the expert on yourself. You're the only one who knows how you feel or what's going to make you happy. No one external to you has any right or any ability to tell you anything about yourself because you're the only expert in the room. You're the only expert in the universe, in fact. And so when it comes to that, for someone to come along and tell you what's right or wrong for you Hmm. to quote unquote judge, it doesn't even make sense within a secular worldview because we're all our own authority. So of course, in that worldview box, judging is the ultimate sin. It's the only thing that's wrong because no one can tell you anything. Now, that said, it makes sense theoretically within that, but they don't take that, they meaning people with a secular worldview, don't usually take that to the logical extreme and say, well, it's okay to murder someone. Mm. 
And this is where you start to see the inherent contradictions mm-hmm. in it. Because yes, they say, don't judge me. Don't judge my morality. Don't judge my ideas. Only I can know. But at the same time, even within this worldview box, you see that people will make judgments all the time, Yes, right? They will judge you for your Christian views. They will judge and say that your morality is offensive. They will make these judgments, but even within a non-Christian context, they're going to make the judgment that murder is bad, that torture is bad, that rape is bad. So it's all sort of theoretical until you take it out to the extreme and you point this out and you say, but wait a second, there are certain things that are wrong. So even though they would like to think that everyone is on their own morality island, that's not how it plays out. It plays out that they're actually appealing to some kind of objective morality, whether they want to or not. And the objective morality that they're trying to form is exactly opposite of what the Bible teaches in many cases. So there's a, there's a lot that can be teased out of that. But I think that that's, that's really important for people to understand that everyone's making judgments all the time. That's right. The secular culture thinks that judging is inherently wrong because it looks to the authority of the self. But don't get pulled into that. Yeah. Don't get pulled into that way of thinking. Amen. And for Christians, when uh, you, you know you use the verse, judge ye not, lest ye be judged against someone else who's making a discerning observation or judgment on something. Be careful, because we take that out of context. Read the whole chapter. I believe that's Matthew 7. Have you seen the meme where it says, here's how some people interpret this. It says, judge ye not, lest ye be judged, and the whole rest of the chapter is blacked out in magic marker. <laughs> so you just, got, <laughs> you just have that one phrase, and that's what they try to live right. by. Um, so let's jump over to what we talked about before the break. And what is the difference, and I'm glad you addressed this, so thankful between secular social justice and biblical justice, and why is it important for Christians to understand the difference, Natasha? So that's a giant, huge topic, obviously. So I'm just going to break it down into a couple of key points that I try to make in that chapter to help people with this. And there are obviously whole books written on this. But one of the things that I want to help people understand is you can see the clear differences between the secular ideas of social justice that are so popular today and the biblical idea of justice if you look at three questions in particular. Number one is why are things the way they are? And when I say things, I'm talking about the marginalization of people, the the oppression that we sometimes see in society, the problems that we see. Why are things the way they are? And by the way, that's something we can all agree on. So sometimes you have to look and say, well, where, where do we have a point of commonality? Well, that's a point of commonality. There's a lot of bad stuff in the world. We can all say yes, absolutely, 100%. But the very first question is why? Why are things the way they are? And the answer to that question has very different implications between these two perspectives. From a biblical perspective, why are things the way they are? Because of sin. Because we are sinful people, we make sinful choices. That is going to lead to poverty. That is going to lead to racism in some cases. That is going to lead to marginalization of people. Yes, absolutely. There is sin in the world. However, from the secular social justice perspective, which is generally based on what's called critical theory, which I know you've talked about uh, plenty on your show also, when you look at critical theory, it's saying there are groups in the world of oppressors and Mm -hmm. the oppressed, and people are oppressed due to social structures. It always comes back to the social structures. There are people in power. There are norms that have been in place in society such that people 
are oppressed, not because of sin, not because of anything they've done, but if you're oppressed by their own definition, by the way, then that is the result of social structures. Mm. And also in, in that level of why are things the way they are, there's a different standard of what do we mean by oppressed? What do we mean by justice? For Christians, that must be defined by the Bible, by God himself, by his character, by his nature. That is completely different than the concept of oppression for people with a secular social justice perspective, because their concept of it is, do you feel oppressed? Mm -hmm. Just because you feel oppressed does not mean that from a biblical perspective, you would actually be oppressed. And a good example of that is when people say that the gender binary, that we use words like male or female, like that is oppressive because <laughs> that makes people feel oppressed who don't want to identify as one or the other. Well, obviously, according to the Bible, God makes people male and female. That's not oppression at all. So we're even talking about different types of oppression. Mm -hmm. Those those are, a, we could talk a lot more about that question, why things are the way they are, but that's a really important starting point. The second question is, well, how should things ultimately be? And we're going to differ on that because the vision of society to get rid of the social structures and the norms that have been in place for secular social justice advocates, it, that, that looks totally different than for the Christian who says sin will always be a reality. We should always be working for people who are truly oppressed, but we're not going to have a utopia on earth. Mm -hmm. And then the third question is, mm -hmm. how do you get from point A to point to point B. So in other words, if here's why things are the way they are and here's where we want to be ultimately, how do you get there? And it should go without saying that if you answer to those first two questions completely differently, then you're going to differ on what next. How do you get from one place to the next? On the one hand, you've got people who are calling for revolution to topple the social structures that we have in society because they cause oppression. Mm -hmm. And then we have people from a biblical worldview who are saying, we're always going to have these things, but we need to go out and we need to care for the poor. We need to care for the marginalized, those who are truly marginalized, though we cannot expect a utopia. And we don't go straight to social structures. Of course, there have been some things that have been perpetuated through societies based on social structures. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at the institution of slavery, for example. Of course, that has been a reality. And none of this is to deny that. But to say that everything comes back to social structures and the norms of society is completely not in line with what the Bible teaches. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that condensing that answer. I know that, the, like you said, people have written so much about it, and we could talk about it for hours. But our guest today is Natasha Crane. The book we're talking about is her brand new one. It came out about a week and a half ago. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular, in a secular Culture. And uh, when we come back from our break, we are going to talk about what encouragement you would offer to Christians who feel discouraged by these ongoing culture wars. Secularism doesn't sleep. Evil doesn't sleep. And uh, plus, we'll talk a little bit more about what we mentioned earlier, the fact that progressive Christianity is ultimately a secular pressure that's coming from within the church, which really, Natasha, confuses a lot of people. So we'll clarify that, hopefully, when we come back. You can get the book on our website, natashacrane.com, also Amazon. More in just a minute on Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. I love speaking with Natasha Crane. She's out in L.A. and uh, she's, boy, I, I lived out there for a while. Tough place to live as a Christian, but like we said earlier, it just takes a little bit of light 
to just expose not only the darkness, but light up your culture and your surroundings, be that salt and light that we are called to be for Christ. Um, before we talk about the encouragement that you can offer to Christians who a lot of people feel disheartened and discouraged by the ongoing culture wars, but I want to go back to something I skipped over in chapter one, I think one of the very first sentences in your book, Natasha, um, you wrote an article that I read. In fact, I think I shared it. I, I very rarely read something through uh, on this podcast, but that may have been one of the articles I read the, in, in its entirety. But don't quote me on that. But we did mention it and talk about it. Um, five ways Christians are getting swept into secular, a secular worldview in this cultural moment. And you saw the response of people because so many people could identify with that because it went viral. Natasha, what was that cultural moment, if we can go back to that? And was that a catalyst in your writing and the direction of this book? Definitely. And, you know, the, that cultural moment was all the social unrest that was going mm-hmm. on in that summer of 2020. And there was just so much confusion. I, I personally was confused as I was seeing my Christian friends respond in certain ways that just in terms of their support of some of these secular social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. And when you you start looking into this, I wasn't really familiar with it before, but you start reading what they're all about mm-hmm. and you start seeing the things that they value <laughs> and how they want to destroy the nuclear family and, and these kinds of things. And it's like, but what's going on? Everyone is, everyone is buying into this without taking a moment to step back and say, well, what's going on and what's a biblical response? And so everyone was sort of in this this fury of just responding without thinking. And so that's why I wrote that article. And before that, I was really very focused on apologetics for parents specifically. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of stepped out of my box a bit and yeah. wrote that. And I, to my surprise, it, it went viral and it was shared and liked over 277,000 times. And I received emails for weeks from people who were thanking me saying, I knew something wasn't quite right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. This helps so much. So I just started writing more articles, trying to help people think a little bit more clearly in terms of what the Bible would say versus what some of these movements were saying. And it was really from that that I saw there was this huge need. And those were shared thousands and thousands of times too. And that led to me saying, okay, I'm going to write a book that's not for parents, for this time for a general audience. And I really want to draw out those distinctions between a biblical worldview and a secular one. And I didn't really see a lot that was already out there like that because usually, especially in the area of apologetics, you see something specific like how to talk with Mormons or how to talk with atheists. But a secularism as sort of this broad umbrella worldview explains so much of what we were seeing, and I wasn't really seeing people tackle that specifically. So that absolutely was the catalyst for this book. Absolutely. I, and, and thank you for mentioning that because it was disappointing to see many people within our churches go and, and I'll just say lock arms with this movement, and they did their marches, and they did all these things. And I'm, I'm asking myself, did they actually do the research, and do they believe in the worldview, this Marxist-driven worldview that is against Christianity and the family and what we believe? And did they do any research? And for the most part, I don't think they did. I can't answer for everybody, but I was very disappointed that people jumped on the bandwagon. And we talked about that earlier, Natasha. It's something that sounded good and it felt good at the time to support because, of course, Black Lives Matter. But in God's world, every human life matters, has value, is created in his image, 
And uh, we've got to get that right before we can go on. And, and the church was confused about that. So thank you. Um, be, I, before, I do want to ask another question, um, but I, because we need to encourage people that have been disheartened or discouraged by these ongoing culture wars, I just want to ask what encouragement you would offer to those who are listening right now who have been out trying to fight some of these battles. Yeah, I think it, it is tough because on the one hand, I like to remind people that if you're grieving what you see in culture, that's actually a sign of a healthy spiritual life. Mm, amen. <laughs> Sometimes we don't want to be sad. Sometimes we think like, oh, this is bringing me down so much. So, I, you know, something's wrong. I need to pull away. And sometimes we do need to pull away for sure. That's a whole other conversation. But if you're grieving what you see, that does mean that you're in a healthy place spiritually because it means that you recognize sin for what sin is. Yes. You recognize that this is not a culture that loves the Lord. This is not mm. a culture that sees the Bible as God's word. And yes, grieve that. Yes, but don't stay there. Grieve it for what it is, but then also recognize that Jesus told us we would be hated. So some of this is readjusting our expectations, I think, because as Christians in America who come from a, a long history here of the country sort of having values that were consistent with biblical Christianity in terms of the family and marriage and human equality over time that were rooted in the biblical worldview. Now those things are being discarded and it's mm. super obvious to us all of a sudden, oh wait, everything's going crazy. But we've just been kind of spoiled. There are lots of people around the world living in countries where that's never been the case. So we need to readjust our expectations so that we know Jesus didn't tell us we were going to live in a place where everyone would love him. In fact, he said that the world would hate us. So expect that this is going to happen. But know, know that truth has nothing to fear and that God ultimately has the victory. We don't know what any particular outcome is going to be in our specific culture. We don't know what's going to happen in America, but we know that God is ultimately the winner and that ultimately this is all part of God's plan and we're part of that. So we should find joy in the obedience and trust God for the outcome, whatever that might be. Amen. Thank you. Continue to trust God, friends. Um, I just want to mention some of the things you wrote in uh, page 183. Um, what chapter is that? I don't. It, anyway, the chapter is called Reinvigorating the Spirit of Discernment. And I love this. We already talked about Judge Not Jesus. And uh, there's Prosperity Jesus, Santa Claus Jesus, there's Therapist Jesus, Activist Jesus, and Red Letter Jesus. And we're talking about discernment, friends. We're talking about discerning false Christs and um, other Gospels. So you can read that in Natasha's book, Faithfully Different. That's in um, Reinvigorating the Spirit of Discernment. Boy, we need to be discerning today, and we need to pray for wisdom in these times. But I want to go over to your blog real quick before we let you go, Natasha Crane. You wrote a phenomenal—I think it's just provocative and phenomenal, and you pointed this out. Um, it goes along with this question I was going to ask next, and the question is, what do you think has led to secular culture becoming so mainstream and extreme in such a short period of time, and your blog in last November is called How Culture Got to the Point Where Saturday Night Live is Promoting Abortion in a Clown Outfit. Now, as Christians, we shake our heads, some of us laugh, and put, but we have to kind of analyze how did we get here because that would not have flown 50 to 100 years ago in the United States. So, Natasha, 
What do you think has led to this culture, the secular culture, becoming mainstream and extreme in this period of time? Yeah, well, that, that that's a big question, too. There's there's so much that could be said. But I think, and I was touching on it a little bit in the last answer, so I'm just going to expand on that a bit. But it actually has been in process for a long time. We It just hasn't been as obvious to us. Mm-hmm. So when you look at more of that data that we were talking about, what they found is that in the last 25 years, the percent of people with a biblical worldview has decreased by half in America. So that's an interesting thought because like I say in the book, it, you know, think about where you were 25 years ago. Well, most of us can kind of picture that. <laughs> mm. I'm old enough to picture that. I, it doesn't seem like that long ago, mm-hmm. but half the people who have a biblical worldview then have it now. And so I think that's really interesting because it's not that in any sense we have all as a culture, as a country, held to the core doctrinal tenets of Christianity for all time in our history, and then all of a sudden everyone's discarding it today. That's just not the case. That's been a long process. I mean, you can see that going back decades and and even hundreds of years, uh, back to right after everyone came over. I mean, you started to see things degrade after that. But When you get closer to our present day, something has changed, and that's that culture is now discarding the values that had been sort of a long hangover from the core doctrinal tenets of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting distinction because I think that it has blinded us a bit to the fact that overwhelmingly our culture had no actual Christian beliefs, but they were holding on to a lot of these values, like I mentioned earlier, in terms of human equality mm-hmm. and and freedom and, and marriage and the nature of the family, the importance of the family. Those things were all consistent with Christianity. So as Christians, we could sort of feel comfortable in the culture, feeling like, well, you know, these things are kind of going along with what I believe. And we didn't ask the deeper questions about, well, what is that based in? And, and what do people believe beyond those things? But they were borrowing the values from us. Mm-hmm. What has changed then so recently? recently is that the values themselves are now being discarded too. And now people hate the values. Mm. And that now gets to this totally different view and culture where it's very obvious to us. And now we look at it and we say, something big has changed. What happened all of a sudden? Well, the the discarding of values is far more recent, but this has been in process for a long time. We just notice it a lot more. But people, we can't look back in honesty and say, oh, people have been Christians for a very long time in our country. That, no. That's been a process of unwinding over long periods. That's right, Natasha. And I think social media and the instant 24-7 news cycle and uh, our ability to see almost immediate headlines or s- disturbing stories from across the country, wherever it might be, in a split second or moment or minute, I think that has also influenced us to, to think that there is more evil it's just evil has always been around. It's just that we're hearing more about it because of the advances in technology. Would you agree? Yeah, there, that's definitely a factor, too. We we are far more aware of what's going on mm-hmm. because everything around us, we have opportunity to access that information. And so we're aware of the changes that are happening. And those two things together really go hand in hand. So thank you for, we only have a few minutes left, but uh, for kind of closing the book, one of your last chapters is called Reshaping Our Hearts for Sharing the Gospel. I believe there's a lot of people in the church, well-meaning Christians, and those who do have a biblical worldview that have just gotten away from the basic truth and the, 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 the privilege we have 
to share the good news of Jesus Christ because of the world around us and what's happening. And um, and so I, I think we need that little you know push or encouragement to get back to continue to share. It's not our responsibility how people receive it or whether they become converted. That's God's business. But share a little bit on why you decided. Obviously, I think I know the answer to that. You lay it out in chapter 12, but about reshaping our hearts to share the gospel. I, I think that we still we have to remember that the gospel is still the best news. Amen. <laughs> it is still the best news Amen. that our culture could hear, whether or not they want to hear it. And just like you said, it's not our responsibility in terms of how they're going to receive that. It's our responsibility to share it. But far too many Christians today feel like it's somehow arrogant to share the gospel. They've bought into the secular worldview in that. And I mm. give statistics that amongst millennials, almost 50% think that it, it, millennial Christians, by the way, almost 50% think that it's wrong to share your faith in the hope that someone will convert. Wow. I think it's wrong. Wow. And and I, that's what I, I really focus on in that chapter is just highlighting how they have taken that belief from secular culture and import it into, imported it into their own. Because secular culture, again, authority of the self, in that worldview, of course it's arrogant to come along and tell someone what they should or shouldn't do, should or shouldn't believe. Should is a dirty word because then you're putting your place in yourself in a supposed place of authority. And there's no authority outside of the self. But that's within a secular worldview. You can't, as a Christian, have a biblical worldview and then import that in and say, well, yeah, I agree. It's arrogant. Well, that's just cognitive dissonance. Those things can't be true at the same time. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Mm. So we can't both believe in the Bible and take on a secular talking point that it's arrogant to share your faith in the hope someone will come to that truth. This is about salvation. This is about objective truth. Mm -hmm. It's no more arrogant to share the gospel than it is to explain to someone that two plus two equals four, whether they like that or not. It's not very compassionate either, either if we really believe the Bible is true and understand what happens in eternity to those who reject God and are away from him forever in hell. And that's, so it's not really compassionate for us to not share. As you said, it's the greatest news. It's still the best news ever. Uh, wish we had more time, Natasha, but thank you for this book. I know you've written a lot for parents to equip their children, but this is one that we all need to read. It's called Faithfully Different, and the subtitle, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. You can get it at Amazon.com and other outlets, plus at NatashaCrane.com. God bless you, sister. Keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. All right, guys, uh, we appreciate it. And uh, sharing the podcast, of course, on social media, that's what gets it out there because we are shadow banned and censored in just about any way you can. But tomorrow we're bringing in a couple local Christian business owners. One's a nurse, one's got a coffee shop, and the other an Italian restaurant. And we're going to talk about how they have been dealing with um, different ideas on whether it's been uh, vaccinations or religious freedom and other issues as Christian business owners. But God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.